This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. With the introduction of super foams and carbon plates, it's never been more fun to tackle the trails. The Nike Ultrafly hit shelves recently, giving runners a chance to take the tried-and-true ZoomX midsole foam off the road and onto the trails for long distances. In our chief editor Matt Klein's review of the shoe, he says those wanting ZoomX foam with a plate that feels comfortable at both easy and up-tempo paces will enjoy the Ultrafly. The Ultra Marathon community should be excited that they have a super shoe designed for them. Not to be outdone, Hoka's Tecton X2, New Balance's Super Comp Trail, and Saucony's Endorphin Rift offer excellent alternatives that each have their own strengths. Find reviews on all four Super Trail shoes at Doctors of Running and head over to runningwarehouse.com to shop today. And welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of the stuff we're putting on our feet. I'm Andrea Myers, and I'm here with Nathan Brown, and we've got a really special guest with us today, Ashley Mateo, who is an excellent journalist and editor in the running world. Um, she's here to talk to us about all things journalism, writing, social media, how she got into what she's currently doing. So thank you, Ashley, so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to join us. You were just telling us earlier that it's pretty hot out there in Denver, um, getting out in the 80 degree weather this morning. It's nothing like marathon training through the summer, especially at altitude. (laughs) Yeah, the best for your <laughs> ego, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it really, it's humbling. Um, so I want to go ahead and introduce Ashley and then have her give our listeners a little bit of background on herself. So um, like I said, Ashley is an award-winning journalist and editor. She currently works as a freelance editorial consultant. She was previously the site director of Redbook and the deputy digital editor editor at Shape. Her writing has appeared in such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, Time, Runner's World, Women's Running, Men's Journal, Health, Women's Health, Bicycling, and more. Many of my favorite publications to read about uh, running and cycling. Uh, She received her degree in journalism from Boston University, and she is also a certified running coach, and Ashley lives in Denver. So once again, welcome, Ashley. Um, Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about both your journalism background and your running background? Of course. It's kind of funny to me because I went into journalism and if you had told me one day I'd be writing about running, I would have laughed in your face because I didn't run. (laughs) (laughs) I thought running was an insane thing to do and a form of exercise that I avoided at all costs. Um, I actually started in music journalism and thought that I would be, you know, almost famous going on tour and writing for Rolling Stone. And I was sort of on that path and it just wasn't as fulfilling as I hoped it would be. Um, Honestly, it was kind of exhausting. It's a lot of going to concerts, you know, being out until 4am. It's very much a a be seen kind of industry. You know, you have to be at the right parties and the right places and, Hmm. It just, I it got tiring, like literally tiring. And I ended up moving through a couple different publications and getting to Shape Magazine where I was a deputy editor. And a deputy editor means you kind of oversee all of the sections. So you're not, you know, specifically beauty or fashion or wellness or anything. You're, you're top editing all of it. And 
obviously Shape is a fitness magazine at its core. And the fitness world just seemed so much happier. People were just hmm. more positive. They were healthier. They were more welcoming. Um, it just it just had a better vibe. And while I was working at Shape, I got invited to do a half Ironman, which I deleted the email because I was like, that's insane. Who wants to do something like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't run, bike, or swim at that point. I was like, no, thank you. Um, but I was also kind of at this crossroads of just doing boutique fitness and, you know, classes that I, I wasn't really finding a community. I didn't really feel drawn to any particular type of class that I was doing. Um, and a coworker also got the invite and she said she was going to do it. And I was like, wait, if you can do that, then I can do that. So, (laughs) so we ended up doing a half Ironman. So do it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we did it. Um, I did not drown during the swim, which seemed like a strong possibility. I thought cycling was going to be my favorite and the easiest because it's something that I have done, not seriously, but I grew up bike riding. My dad is a big cyclist. Um, But then running is what stuck. Running is what felt the best on many different levels. And I just wanted to keep doing it after that race. And here we are. (laughs) Well, big thanks to the person who sent out the email, huh? Right? Thank you, Iron yeah. Man, for inviting me to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, so before we get into the main part of the episode, I want to ask our subjective question for both our listeners and for you, Ashley. So what are your favorite sources for running information? Where do you get your info for your own personal running or even for the articles or the uh, videos that you do? I think it sort of depends on what I'm looking for. I think if it's my own writing, I'm looking at all kinds of sources, whether that's academia or doctors associated with medical institutions, hospitals, whatever, Um, social media. I feel like that has become a huge platform for connecting with experts as long as you vet them properly, which we can get into. Um, But in terms of running content and reading about running, there are still a lot of journalists out there that are doing incredible work. Um, A couple that I really like to follow and read are Erin Strout, Amelia Benton, uh, Sarah Lorge, George Butler, uh, Cindy Kuzma. These are writers who've been doing this for a very long time and they are so plugged in to the industry. And I feel like the stories that they have access to and that they tell are really important. And so when I'm reading about running, those are the people, a few of the people that I kind of gravitate towards. But then when I'm looking for sources outside of writers, it's I start with social media a lot of the time. And it's funny with social media now, even you know, like you said, you can connect to a lot of um, scholars that way as well. I think about mm-hmm. like Rich Willie. So he's a kind of one of the bigger wigs in running research. And he puts some of his findings up on their Instagram page through some useful, you know, he doesn't post all the time. He posts, you know, every once in a while with very thoughtful posts, but you can reach out to him that way. And you can also have access to some of the data that they're getting in their lab. And so you can get the gamut now. And um for, from this our side of things too, it's nice to see researchers become a little bit more accessible as mm-hmm. well to the community because if we silo ourselves too much, uh, sometimes you don't get enough crosstalk that can make either the research more tangible or vice versa and actually having an influence what's going on in the real world. So 
yeah, it's funny how social media is. Um, there, there are the the positives and the negatives to social media, um, but when wielded correctly, there's a lot of, of power there. Yeah, I think it's sort of equalized access to a lot of people. Um, you know, I used to have to go through publicists every time that I wanted to speak with an expert, whether it was somebody affiliated with a hospital or a university uh, or a brand. If it was an athlete, I had to go through their agent or their PR. Now I can DM an athlete. It's not guaranteed that they're going to respond, but some of them, I have enough of a relationship where if I'm like, Hey, I'm working on a story like this, would love to include your thoughts. They will respond. And that's Mm -hmm. incredible. It just cuts out a whole layer of red tape that can make a story drag on, you know, for weeks. And all of a sudden you just like, you have access to that person and you can, your content is much more timely. I think that way. Yeah, I totally agree. It's social media has opened up the world to the rest of the world. And I think Nathan's comment about researchers being online, I love it because it's hard. I think it just gives another way for people to access the information that these researchers are working on and in a different way than like doing a online scholarly search. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it brings their research to people who maybe wouldn't have otherwise found their, the articles that they've written. So it benefits both the researcher because it can help them get more funding, um, help them find subjects, et cetera. But it also helps everyday people because it's bringing accurate information to people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have found those scholarly articles. Mm Mm-hmm. I've even seen on Twitter researchers responding directly to everyday people who are asking questions about their own training. Okay, you shared this study, but this is the type of runner I am, or this is the type of running that I'm doing right now. Is this right? Is this wrong? Should I be changing something? And obviously a researcher doesn't have the time to answer every single question, but I think it's pretty cool that anybody can go ask these experts how to apply that expertise in real life. It is. Yeah. Something like that would have been unthinkable even 15 years ago, right? Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the main part of our episode today. So first, we just want to talk to you a little more about being a writer. And I just love the story about how you got into running because really it was (laughs) something you didn't want to do at all. And it ended up kind of changing your career and your life, right? Yeah. So we want to talk to you more about content creation. Um, so once you decided that you loved running and that's what you wanted to write about, how did you get into writing about running? I mean, you were at a publication that already made sense for you to write about running. So did you just like volunteer to be the running journalist or how did that work? Well, it didn't even need a title like that, you know? I just started pitching ideas that revolved around my questions about running. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it so much harder to run in the heat? Or why am I not recovering as quickly as it seems other people are? Or what is a hill workout? You know, whatever those very basic questions were, you know, back in 2015, we didn't have that content at that point. And so I just started writing that content. And I was also writing a ton of other stuff in the, in the health and wellness sphere, but it kind of a, a well-rounded approach to fitness. So it wasn't just a hundred percent running. And then I left shape 
to go to Redbook where it was not a health and wellness magazine. And it was great. I wanted that director title. I wanted that managerial experience, but I did not. I missed writing about running. <laughs> like mm. it just, I wrote a little bit about it. I was able to freelance for some other publications within the same umbrella company about running. But at that point I was getting more and more into the sport myself and I wanted a stronger outlet or more outlets where I could actually talk about that as opposed to working for one publication. And so then in 2017, I decided to go freelance. And that was when I made the full commitment to, again, I don't just write about running, but really, really (laughs) focusing on running and fitness and health. And sometimes there's some travel stuff in there. Sometimes there's some other random stuff, but I would say more than 75% of what I do is running and fitness. And what was that transition like for you going from working in a managerial role at Redbook to freelance? I'm sure that must have been quite a, not just culture shock, but like life rhythm shock. It actually wasn't so much. I had been freelance once before when I had been laid off, which is a rite of passage in the media industry at this point. Um, And that time was really scary because I didn't have any safety net set up. I didn't know how to freelance. I didn't have those contacts yet. And so there are a couple months of just fear. You know, I, I would take any assignment, any, any kind of work, whether it was what I wanted to write about or not, as long as I was getting a paycheck because I was so afraid, you know, how am I going to pay my rent in New York? Um, I was looking for a full-time job because I didn't know how to freelance and didn't want to be doing it from this place of fear. And I eventually got a full-time freelance job, which basically means you are working full-time but not getting benefits. <laughs> Love the media industry. <laughs> um, and it was nice because I could freelance while I was at that job. So sure. I was doing that you know, nine-to-five job, but also writing for self.com at the time. And I was doing a, a certain number of blogs per day, getting a certain rate per day. And that helped me stockpile some money and After, I think it was like eight months I was at that job, I decided that I wanted to be freelance and go to Europe for six weeks and freelance from Europe and do that whole thing. So I did. And that was a lot less scary because I had had that safety net set up and I I knew what I needed to make in order to pay my bills. And I had some connections and whatnot. So when I left Redbook that second time, that was my choice. And so before I officially had my last day, I was able to put some, you know, some plans in motion for assignments. I had my first assignment for Runner's World before officially leaving my job. So, you know, that was when print paid a little better. <laughs> and hmm. you could have, you know, one or two assignments and feel like you were you're okay. Um, but yeah, it it felt a lot better to make that transition when it was my choice versus when I was at the whims of a corporation. And so it actually felt wonderful. I was very excited to be in what I thought was total creative control of my career. Um, it's not quite that way when you're a freelancer, because obviously it depends on getting, you know, your career depends on getting assignments approved and actually, you know, getting paid to do those things. But being able to work on my own timeline, pitch the ideas that I wanted to write, have the flexibility in my schedule that I wanted, I it would be hard for me to give that up now. It's not 
don't get me wrong. It is a hustle. Like freelancing is not for the faint of heart. You need to have really thick skin. Uh, There's a lot of rejection. It is a ever-changing industry, but I don't think there's a lot more security in full-time media jobs at the moment. And so being a freelancer and having this wealth of experience over the past, I don't know, what is it, like seven years at this point, it would be hard to give that up now. And I'm sure things have changed from when you started to now, but when it comes to being a freelancer and getting assignments, does it look like you reaching out and pitching ideas? Does it look like them reaching out to you? Has that changed over time? What does that connection point look like? It's a little bit of both. And that the ratio of that can change month to month. So there are some months where I'm pitching a ton and any assignments I'm getting are coming from my own ideas. And then there are other months where editors are looking for specific stories and they're coming to me asking me to write certain things. I like that. I like when there's a good mix because coming up with ideas on your own all the time is really hard, especially with other things going on in the world. I mean, the past three years have been brutal, I think, for creative industries. It's very hard to use your brain (laughs) in a creative way 100% of the time and your livelihood relies on that. You know, it's a lot of pressure. And sometimes I don't have good ideas. <laughs> sometimes the ideas just aren't coming. And then sometimes I have all the ideas and I can't place them or whatever. I think what has changed a lot in the past three to five years is what publications are looking for. And so that's also something you always have to be adjusting for as a freelancer. As much as I would love to write the kind of stories that I want to write all of the time, trend pieces, service pieces, human interest pieces. That's just not what publications are looking for all the time now, unfortunately. Um, You know, there was a time when every magazine pivoted to video and there was a time when every magazine relied on Facebook for their, you know, their engagement strategy. Now there's a ton of e-com and SEO is a huge priority. So my workload sort of depends on what publications are looking for and what needs they have month to month. Month to month changes. It's great. I'm interested <laughs> in hearing how what you write about has changed, like let's say over the past like five to 10 years or well, when you started writing about running 2015-ish, right? Mm-hmm. So what when editors contact you and ask you to write a story, has the focus of those articles changed? Um, What are you seeing different just in 2023 compared to 2018? In 2023, I would say the main focus of almost every publication, whether it's a running publication or a publication that is broader, like somewhere like CNN, for example, it's e-com. E-com is driving so much of content these days. And there is nothing wrong with that at all. Like I love testing gear and reviewing gear and writing those roundups. Um, What I miss is the outlets that used to publish bigger service packages or um, trend stories. I'll tell you a sad example of that. I once wrote, um, you remember, I I forget what year I said it was, 2022. It might've just been last year when every brand was putting out a women's specific running shoe. I had a beautiful package put together for women's running, the print magazine. And 
it was just looking at the trend. Why is this happening now? Obviously, women have been running for years. Why are we finally paying attention to them? What has prompted these brands to finally start investing money in research labs to study what women need versus what men need? Um, And then what are these shoes? How are they different from a unisex shoe or a male shoe? And it was a really cool story, just like a moment in time, had a, had a great package laid out for print, and then the, the print magazine folded. So oh, no. <laughs> it lives online. The story, I mean, the story is still a good story. I'm still really proud oh, of it. Oh, it's yeah. still there. That's good. Okay. Yes, it still was published, obviously. But um, there is something different, you know, between a print magazine package when you're flipping through an eight-page story or something like that versus scrolling through a story of that length online. It's a lot easier, I think, to lose interest online and click over to something else and whatnot. Um, A similar type of package like that would be something I did a long time ago for, actually, this was my first freelance story for Runner's World about symmetry and why you will never be a symmetrical runner and how to address imbalances, how they can show up in your running, why strength training is important, something like that. And you have... I think it was, let's say eight pages, but you have the meat of the story, which is the copy, you know, explaining this thought. And then there was a section on strength training moves. And then there was a section on like tests you can do to discover imbalances. And again, it just like that wouldn't translate quite the same way online. And so I miss publications that have the space for those kind of stories because I see so many different trends and it's much harder to place those trend stories these days, in my opinion. That may not be true for every journalist out there, but that's what I've found over the past couple of years. It's become a lot harder to get those sort, those sort of stories assigned. Are there any publications that are still doing those kind of stories? That's a great question. If there are, like, hit me up. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, I'm sure there are. There obviously are. A great piece, mm-hmm. for example, was, I don't know if you guys... Uh, read the Atlantic story about Hoka becoming like the millennial shoe. Mm-hmm. That's a great story. Like not yeah. running specific, obviously, but how this this particular sneaker brand became something that used to be very niche. And now you can see it. Like I have friends who wear them in a fashion way, like out at night. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's my marathon shoe. Um, so they, I mean, people are definitely still writing these stories. Don't get me wrong. They're still out there. I just think it's a lot harder to place them because the real estate and the budgets don't support as many of those stories. Um, you know, uh, something we do a lot at DOR is we're combining our work as PTs with uh, content creation in DOR. So you're a certified running coach and have been for a number of years. How did getting certified change how you write, if any? And how did it inform what you wrote about? Well, I originally got certified to inform my writing. That was the only goal. I didn't think that I should work with runners or could work with runners because what I knew of of coaching at that point was people who, you know, grew up as runners. They were collegiate runners, high school runners, whatever it was. They've been doing this for years or they had exercise science backgrounds. You know, they studied this in school, in grad school, whatever. And so I was like, I'm just doing this so that I can be a better writer. And I do think it helped. It made it made it a lot easier, I think, to cover certain topics without having to find someone to cite for every little 
fact, you know, you should run your easy runs easy, says so-and-so. Now I can just say that because I was starting to know all of these things, but I still felt like as a journalist, I had to make sure I was citing an expert so that the reader would understand that this is legitimate knowledge, not something that I'm just saying because I write for Runner's World or whatever it is. So that was sort of how it started. And I do think it made my writing better because it made me more interested in the science behind running. Instead of it just being something that I did that made me feel good, I started to understand why it made me feel good, why I was getting better at it, why I wasn't getting better at it. And that also inspired new story ideas. But I also just, I, when did I get certified? Um, I first got certified in 2019, right before moving out to Colorado. And I just wanted to be as immersed in the running world as possible after I got here. It was such a strong community and I really loved feeling like I belonged to that community. And so I continued, you know, I continued writing about running. I continued learning about running. I got a second certification. And after I got that second certification, I was like, could I do this? You know, could I work with real runners is my knowledge enough. (laughs) And I spoke with a coach, um, based in Boulder, a strength coach, and he invited me to team up with him to be a running coach through his gym. And I was like, well, me, like, why, why would you want to work with me? Like, am I legit enough? You know, total imposter syndrome. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, you've been doing this for almost 10 years. Like, not only do you have your certifications, but also you've been interviewing athletes and experts and you have that knowledge to apply to people as well. And I was like, oh, I do. (laughs) That's, That's a very good point. And so I started with him and have just sort of grown it from there. And it's certainly, it's not my, not making a living as a coach, but that was never really the goal. I don't want to be a full-time coach. I want to work with, you know, a handful of people who have goals, but also want to have fun with running and help them, you know, get the most out of it that they can. Nathan and I are both part-time coaches as well. And okay. so I, th- I think your story about that strength coach, you know, telling you all of the great attributes about yourself that make you qualified as a great coach is such a great story because sometimes we just need somebody else to tell us everything we already know. And then it's like, wow, yeah, I can do this. I do sound like a good coach. (laughs) Yeah. When I got into coaching, I had no intention of coaching ever. And I was injured and one of my friends asked me to coach her and I was like, what do you want me to coach you for? I'm not a coach. I wouldn't be a good coach. And, you know, same thing. She told me why I would be a good coach for her. And it's like, well, maybe I will be a coach. You know, (laughs) I started with her and it's, coaching is so rewarding. Like it's one thing to work hard for yourself, but then to help somebody else achieve their goals, I find to be even more fulfilling than like my own athletic pursuits. And like I could never give up coaching. Even if I was only coaching one person, I don't think I would ever give it up because of just how fulfilling it is to help somebody in that manner. It's that longevity. Yeah, the longevity of that connection is is pretty special. And walking through a lot of ups and downs with what the coaching journey and the running journey is, because everybody's going to have those ups and downs, whether they're physical or mental or whatever. It is a different type of relationship and the shift from that coming from like being a physical therapist into some coaching realm, even you, Andrea, you're the one you told me that I 
could do it. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, do, do either of you watch Survivor? No. No Survivor. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Well, this, feels, this feels like, so at the end, there's something called the Final Tribal Council where they each have to make their case as to why they should win. And there's inevitably every couple seasons, there's someone who is clearly like, has a has a clear reason why they should win, but they don't see it. Mm-hmm. And it's not till the show's over and then everybody from like, the Survivor Nation, like, tells them, this is why you should have won. They're like, oh, man, if I could go back, I probably could have vouched for myself as to why I should be the sole survivor. That's all of our experiences. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of imposter <laughs> syndrome for everybody. Well, I also think, like, running is so mental that it's so helpful to have somebody not in your head <laughs> telling yeah. you that you can do these things that you might not believe you can do. And I think, I feel like Steve Magnus has posted about this a lot, but anybody can download a plan from the internet or cobble together a training plan. And like, it'll get them most of the way there for sure. It's not rocket science, but so much of what having a coach does for you is help you believe in yourself. Like I think of it almost as like a therapist role sometimes. I'm not a therapist by any means. And I don't think I am, but I do think having somebody to voice your fears or your insecurities to, or, or voice your big goals to and say, this is something I really want to do, but I'm scared, you know, of how I'll get there. Just sharing that with somebody makes it more likely, I think, and makes you more empowered to go after whatever it is. I mean, it's why I don't coach myself. I could never coach myself. I would like, I would do nothing. I have a coach and he prescribes workouts and I'm like, this is psychotic. (laughs) There's no way I can do this. And then I do it and I'm like, oh, you were right. He's like, I know. <laughs> um, I would. I think I agree with you, Ashley. So much of coaching is not like the writing of the training plan because yeah, anyone could go online and get a generic training plan and, you know, probably not come out of that completely unscathed, but, you know, get decently fit. But so much of it is helping people deal with, like balancing training with their life or self-doubt or knowing that when you get to number six of eight, eight hundreds on the track, how you're going to feel and it's normal to feel that way. Like that's what, that's where coaching makes the difference in someone's life. Yeah. Being that voice of, not just a reason, but voice of I've been there I know how you're going to feel. It's okay to feel this way and you'll get through it. Here's how you can get through it. Yeah. Even when you know, I mean, I've run 13 marathons at this point. I know exactly what a marathon is going to feel like. I still want that pre-race call where I talk it through with my coach and, you know, can say all the dumb things that I know are (laughs) not going to happen. Like I I remember when New York in 2021 was a month after Chicago. And I just remember sitting on Staten Island being like, what if I forget how to run? Like, what if I just forget how to do it? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I had to like talk myself down off this ledge of like, of course, you know how to run. Like you just ran a marathon four weeks ago. You will be fine. Just start moving. But that's kind of what I think a coach is there to help you do. Talk yourself off those ledges when all of the noise gets in the way. They're the ones who can be like, okay, I hear you and I get it, but let's bring this back to reality. Totally. (laughs) 
And for you did not forget how to run? I did not. I not only did okay. I not forget how to run, I PR'd. So Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> it went great. <laughs> Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think this conversation kind of dovetails nicely into the next section to talk about social media. And the first question I want to ask you, and I think talking about how you became a coach to better inform your writing, this is the best time to bring this up. So there are a ton of influencers out there, sites that give out advice about running training. You can have Steve Magnus at one point in your feed, and then you can have, you know, Marathon Girl 052978. And they're both giving out running advice. And I don't know if that second one is a real account. So if it is, I'm not actually talking about a real person there. I'm just a disclaimer. So how can our listeners know who is a good source of information if they're scrolling Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and versus someone who's maybe just giving like their own personal opinion or personal experience? How does it... Could you give our listeners a few tips on how they might differentiate between accounts like that? Yeah, I think both kinds of accounts have value, but I think you have to look at them from a perspective of, are you looking to be inspired or or are you looking to be educated? And if you're looking to be educated, it's very important to vet the type of account that you're consuming content from. I think if you are going to take advice from an Instagram account, that person should be certified. They should be actively coaching athletes. You should be able to find testimonials from those athletes or see that they're sharing, you know, feedback from those athletes, whatever it is, some, some kind of proof that they are actually working with people. And they should also be continuing their education as a coach, you know, are they sharing studies that they're interested in? Are they sharing, I don't know, you know, articles that they think would benefit athletes. I think the inspirational content is also great. It's so cool to scroll through social media and see people doing incredible running things or being honest about the hard parts of running. That's great too. But if you are just blindly following somebody who is only sharing their running experience, that's not expertise. That's opinion. And you might share some of their opinions or their opinions might resonate with you. But if you want science-backed expertise that will help you be a better runner, you need to be consuming that from somebody who has that background where they, you know, whether they're a DPT like you guys or a physical therapist in a lab somewhere or a sports MD or a sports psychologist or a coach on a, I don't know, pro athlete team. Those are people who spent time studying the sport and have really immersed themselves in it beyond just what they do. And I think that's what gives them a more well-rounded foundation of expertise to share as opposed to somebody who started running and loves it and wants to share their journey. It. Yeah, so if you if you go on a if you go on a like a Instagram account and they have some educational content whatever but they're also selling a product. So mm-hmm. it could be for a specific like product like mobile board, you know, and I'm just throwing that out there just because that is a something that I use that I like yeah. to use with my patients that I work with. Um 
or if it's a coach who's giving out like advice, but they're also selling their coaching services, okay. does that change how you would how would you would view kind of that page at all? Or or yeah, does that have any change into it? I don't think it would change. I think everything that I just said still applies. Like you still need to vet that person, especially if they're hawking specific products, because I think there are a lot of influencers out there who do make a living through sponsorships and collaborations online. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you as a consumer of that content need to do your due diligence in vetting them and the product. Just because they use it doesn't mean it will work for you. Just because they're, you know, sharing a 20% discount code doesn't mean that's a legitimate product. If they're selling coaching plans, that's a different story. That would not ever make me think any less of somebody. But again, the same thing applies. Like, are they certified? Do they have expertise coaching? And also you have to know that if you're buying a downloadable training plan where they're not giving you feedback, you know, weekly or whatever, or you can't ask them questions, then that's not going to be as good as a training plan as a one-on-one coach. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means you need to then have some expertise on your own. You know, so many beginner runners will download plans. I mean, that's, this is how I started training for marathons too. I would, I would download, let's say a runner's world or like Hal Higdon. I feel like that's a really popular one with beginner runners. And those are great. But you, that's how you learn what to do and what not to do. Because, you know, I downloaded one that was like a very high mileage training plan. And I was so, so burned out by the time I got, you know, four weeks out from the race that I was like, I can never do this again. I was like, I need to work with a coach who can, who can tell me what is appropriate for my fitness level, you know? And so I think that's something that people need to be really careful if you are going to download a plan from somebody because they're an incredible social media influencer, you need to know what you're getting into with that plan. If you're not prepared to adjust it for your life or you don't know how to, you know, tweak workouts for your fitness level, whatever, then you'd be better served by hiring a coach. It may be more expensive, but that investment is going to pay off a lot more in the long run. I did a, um, a newsletter on this topic once and Jason Fitzgerald, who does the strength running podcast, he had a great quote, which I'm going to butcher because my memory is terrible, but (laughs) it it was basically like, are they an influencer first who does coach or are they a coach that also uses social media? And so I think that's something that you have to think about when you are consuming that kind of content. What is the person's main priority? Is it just to build a community and an audience and make a living that way through those branded collaborations, through selling, sell, selling training plans? Or are they a coach that has decided to use social media to further their, the reach of their expertise? Those are two very different things. And so I think that's on the social media user or consumer or whatever we call them. That's on them to do that research. Yeah, I think that's a really nice distinction because so I lead a biomechanics running lab and within that is where kind of the coaching's house. So I like to have a social media account to try to put out stuff that I think can help people that they don't need me one-on-one for and some ideas for exercises on conditions, whatever. Um, But we also sell 
the services that we do, you know, like, and we're trying to connect people to those opportunities. And so I, I agree with you very much on, you know, the presence of selling something doesn't discredit it, mm-hmm. but it does for me make me think like that question is, are they here selling this product so that, you know, are they growing this to sell the product or are they like producing something really good and they use this as a platform to grow. So I, I love that distinction that you, well, that Jason yeah. brought to us. <laughs> <Through you>. um, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jason. Um, no, I feel the same way. I am leading a small group for the New York marathon for training and it's kind of a hybrid. It's not one-on-one coaching, but it's not like, here's your PDF. Godspeed. Um, we have monthly check-ins. They all have direct access to me and Chris is the strength training coach. So any questions that they have to ask, they will get a response within 24 hours. And it's not just like through Instagram DM. It's like we have a whole channel, you know, a a community chat for it. So I understand that coaching can be expensive for a lot of people. And I felt like this was a way to kind of do the best of both worlds. It's more affordable, but you're still getting direct communication with a coach, which I think is key. You know, these plans are great if you know what you're doing, if you have lots of experience, especially with something like a marathon, but life happens, things come up, you need to adjust, you have a vacation, you get sick, whatever, you have a injury or a niggle start popping up that you need to address. You need to be able to talk to somebody and just, just sending a DM isn't the best method to me, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, have it, It's the direct communication when things come up because no training block ever goes 100% to plan. And as athletes, we're very bad at making adjustments in the moment. We usually need somebody else to help us reason it through. Yeah, I think that's one of the hard things about the running community. I think it draws a lot of really type A people, myself included, and... I love following a plan. If you give me a plan, I will follow it to a T to my detriment in a lot of cases. And so if you don't know, like at this point, also because I have coaching certifications now, like I could course correct if something happened in the middle of a marathon build, but that's why I have a coach because I don't want that mental load on myself. And I don't think that other runners should have that either. I think that if you're going to invest the time into something like going for a PR or doing a long distance race, like a marathon, it's worth it for those few months to get a coach. Or if you think that you might want to do that one day and you're just getting into running, that's actually probably the best time to hire a one-on-one coach because then you can like avoid all of the beginner issues that plague runners, you know, like doing too much too soon or running too fast all the time. And that's, that's what a coach is there to do, to help you kind of like to save you from yourself kind of. And (laughs) I don't know, I think like, to me, that's worth the money a hundred percent because then like, you know, you're spending all this money on $275 racing shoes and, you know, multiple race entry fees. Like there was some study, not study, but a survey um, about how much runners spend per year. And I can't remember the exact amount of money, but let's say it was like around 800. That's a lot of dollars to spend on a sport. And if you go out, like if you commit to doing that and buying all the gear and signing up for the races, but then you injure yourself, you know, before you can even use any of that, what's the point? Use that money towards a coach who can help you get there in a healthy way. 
I tell people injuries are expensive. So <laughs> getting a coach usually costs less than all the money you're going to spend trying to undo your injury. So yes. in the end, you'll probably have a better outcome with whatever your fitness goals are. But avoiding that injury also usually saves you quite a bit of money. You know, think yeah. how much money you spend on massage or, oh, your calf is always tight. So you bought a Theragun and you needed a few PT sessions, but you've got a high deductible and you had to go see the orthopedist. Like that adds up to a year of coaching pretty quickly. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Really quickly. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I never want to get to a point where I have an injury that costs more than, well, I don't spend a lot of money on gear, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't want to be side, like For me to be sidelined yeah. would be so sad and such a like negative overall in my life that that has value too. I don't want that. I'd rather spend the money I need to to train smart and stay healthy than you know, risk not being able to do what I love. We're, we're talking about health too. And we've also been talking about social media and vetting and how reliable are these things? What do we know about the reliability of like the, of the top influencers in this like fitness world? And like, yeah, can you, can you just, you kind of reference this a little bit, but like, is there anything that we know concrete about like how reliable they are and, you know, just how that can influence our health? overall and whether being engaged in the media world is healthy for us as runners. Do you have thoughts on that too? Yeah. I had flagged a couple um, studies that I have referenced over the past couple years as I've been reporting on the mental health side of running. I think that is the part of running that is most interesting to me because it's something that I deal with a lot. Um, from an influencer perspective, there was a study that came out that said, um, approximately two thirds of the top 100 fit influencers. So not, not just running, but fitness influencers in general, um, they lack reliable guidance and promote uh, messages that could potentially, potentially harm your mental or physical health. So not great. Like that's bad. Two thirds. Like, <laughs> come on. That's, that's a, that's too high. But that I, I don't love that. Um, and then I also deal a lot with the mental effects of things like wearables and social media platforms, whether it's Instagram or Strava. And so I had found this study a while ago for a story that said, like using tracking platforms like Strava, Nike, MyFitnessPal, any of those kind of platforms is great. If you're using that as a way to support other runners, encourage other runners, be a part of the community, that's awesome. I love that. But if you're using it as sort of a, a destination for kudos or um, praise, public support, if that's what's like fueling your use of them, then then you're more likely to be obsessive about exercise, which is bad, and experience higher stress levels, also bad. So hmm. I'm very careful about how I use those platforms. I think Strava is one that is practically ubiquitous at this point. And it's great, but I never look at other people's workouts. I don't want to know what you're doing. I don't care. Like, I'll kudos you because I think it's great that you got out there and did something, but I don't want to see your splits. I don't want to see how far you went. Like, it's just to me, that is your journey and I need to protect my journey. 
Because when I get too caught up in what other people are doing, it makes me feel bad about what I'm doing. Like, why am I not running that many miles a week? Oh, we're running the same marathon. Why isn't my long run as long as your long run? And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not, you have no concept of the context around their training, the nuances of their daily life. Putting that kind of energy into that is not good. And expecting that kind of feedback from other people, you know, for to, to log onto Strava and like refresh for those likes or Instagram to be just waiting for people to comment and engage with your content. It's just like, it's a not, doesn't feel great after a certain amount of time because it starts to mess with your why of why you're running, why you're doing this, why you're training for this particular race. And I don't know, I, I find it really important to put boundaries up around that kind of social media consumption because I have let it get to me in the past. And there was another study, just remembering this one, um, people who share health-related data on social media are more likely to feel a pressure to perform. And I relate to mm. that very hard. Um, I love social media. I love sharing my fitness journey or my expertise or whatever it is. That's how I got into this. Like when I was training for that Ironman back in 2015, my friends thought I was insane. None of them did anything like this. They had no concept of what training for a race like that entailed. And I found a community online and that community was incredible. And they would give me tips on, oh, you're doing this race. This is what the swim is like, or you should look into this thing for the bike or whatever kind of, I mean, that was a long time ago, so I don't remember the particular advice, but finding that community is really what hooked me into the mm -hmm. fitness world. And I wouldn't give that up for anything. But like I said, I think it's really important to a create awareness around how you use social media and B set up boundaries to make sure you're doing that in a healthy way. And that can be different for everybody. Absolutely. It's kind of like back in the day of print magazines, all of the studies that found like, if you looked at like, any of the women's fashion magazines, like your self-esteem was lower, your body image was poor, all of that. Now, if you're obsessively looking at people's workouts on Strava or like scrolling on Instagram and seeing everybody's like perfect videos of them running, it can damage your self-esteem and feelings of self-worth self in a similar manner. And I think it is important for people to be aware of, like you said, how they're using these platforms and the effect it has on them. I just wanted to reiterate, that's where it comes down to you setting up healthy boundaries because this isn't going away. It's a part of our life and like it or not, it's becoming an even bigger part of sport. And there are pluses and negatives to that, but it comes down to the user. If you are somebody who's triggered by people sharing their paces and you know, if, if you see that somebody ran a nine minute easy mile and you need, you know, you feel like you need to do that, but really you should be running a 10 minute easy mile. That's on you. It's not on that other person on social media. So you are the one who has to either remove yourself from it. That may mean leaving Strava or I, for me personally, I stopped sharing paces on Instagram. I found that when I was training, I don't even remember what race it was. Um, I kept seeing other people sharing their paces and questioning my own workouts and, you know, should I be going faster? They're training for the same race. Then like, why am I not doing that level of volume or hitting those paces yet? And I finally just decided to stop. And I did a story on this. I think it was for runner's world. Um, when you stop sharing things, 
you're less likely to pay attention to them from other people. And so obviously I share my pace on Strava, but to me, Strava is not a platform I spend a ton of time on. Instagram is really where, like, if if I'm going to worry about mental health things, it's coming from Instagram. Um, (laughs) So I stopped sharing my pace and I stopped caring about it as much. That's big. I think the more that we share stuff, the more it can get ingrained with what we perceive as our identity as a runner. Mm-hmm. And so it, you, you can lose your why if your why wasn't because I want to be the best runner in the world or the most cool looking runner in the world. If that's not your why and you try to like make your life about posting things in a, in a certain way, it can just start to seep in. And I think mm-hmm. as you're talking about setting up boundaries, it takes a very honest reflection of what happens to you when you post or when you don't post or when you look at somebody else's thing or if you click into it. it the, and the honest reflection part is sometimes hard because it starts mm-hmm. to reveal stuff about yourself that you might not want to admit. Um, and I think that's yeah. one of the harder parts of the process. And I think for myself, I know I don't know, Andrew, for you, but like for myself, when I get injured, that's a really hard thing to like be real about sometimes because I'm a physical therapist, so I shouldn't get hurt. I'm also coaching runners to like not help them to get to help them not get hurt. So I also shouldn't get hurt. Um, but I get hurt. I'm hurt right now and I haven't been running for a little while. So it's it's one of those it, you have to embrace that reality of of what's going on instead of trying to create a facade that mm-hmm. portrays something that's not real. And um but again, it takes that real reflection on um an honest reflection on what happens to me when when mm-hmm. I post, when I look, when I whatever, to be able to set those boundaries. So, yeah, I would I, I would definitely agree with that, Nathan. Um, I was a cyclist actually before I got back into running a few years ago, and I was injured for almost a year and couldn't ride, and I wasn't running, so I was basically hiking, and I just had to delete Strava, and like I didn't want to see what my friends were doing on their bikes. I didn't want to see like the races I was missing out on because. For me, it was just I needed to forget about that because I was injured. I just, I didn't want to see it. But then, of course, as I got back on the bike, back came Strava, you know. But you just have to know where you're at in, you know, whatever part of life you're in. And if you need to delete Strava while you're injured or sick or, you know, don't have time to run because, you know, you have a really busy job or you just had a baby or something, then... Do that for your own mental health. Nobody is forcing you to be on Strava or be on Instagram. Like, just self-assess and decide what is best for you at a given time. Those platforms, like you said, Ashley, aren't going anywhere. They'll be back when you want them back. Yeah, I do think whether you are using those platforms as a part of your business or you're just a regular social media user, there's still this pressure to perform and to, you know, have incredible running photos and, you know, detail every minute of, you know, your race day or whatever. And I I do all those things too, so I'm not judging it. But I think that pressure to perform can be really detrimental to some people. Some people love it and that's great, but there have been, you know, I go through phases. Sometimes I do love it. And sometimes I feel like I don't have enough to share, or I don't feel in a space that I want to share. And Nathan, you also made me think of this. Um, I think a lot of times when we look at running social media, it's relentlessly positive, you know, it's, 
I love this. Anybody can do it. It's so accessible. It's so great. You know, exercise is my therapy, all that kind of stuff, which is great. You know, that that's great that it's a positive community. But I also think there are a lot of people in the community who don't feel positive all the time. I don't feel positive all the time. I deal with depression. And I finally like started talking about that because I did feel this pressure to perform and be this happy runner, you know, sharing my expertise and talking about how much I love this thing. When there were some days where I like didn't want to get out of bed and running made me feel worse. And I think being transparent about those sides of things too is really important because I guarantee there are runners out there who can relate to that. Um, I'm, I think this has been a really great conversation about social media, and I want to move on to the hottest topic in uh, the online world, which, of course, is AI. And, oh. you know, it's broken into everything we know. Um, we've seen some really terrible articles that it's written about shoes and everything else. So what are your thoughts on AI and how the journalism world is using it now and what you think the future of it is? I mean, I don't love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> And I think everybody talking about how it's going to steal my job, don't love that either. Um, no. <laughs> but I also don't think that that's true because I've seen AI generated copy and it's bad. Like it's really bad. So I think my job is okay once <laughs> these big corporations realize that this may not be the best move. You know, if we're going from pivoting to video to e-com to AI, I don't, I don't think AI is going to be a great option for these companies. I think that what AI does at this point from an editorial perspective, it just, it regurgitates things. So it's either regurgitating other content that already lives on the internet, or it's regurgitating product specs, you know, for gear reviews. And that is to me like the lowest form of copy, if you're just regurgitating other stuff. And you can 100% tell when a human has written something versus a machine. It just... AI lacks like the nuance and the creativity and the personal insights that go into a review. I'll, I'll use reviews as an example for now. Like AI cannot tell you how a hydration belt felt during an 18 mile run. It can't. All it can do is use similarly written stories from the internet and product specs for that hydration belt and string them together in a way that is like coherent, I'm sure, but lacks any kind of personalization and any anything more informative than what you would find just in the bullet points on a product's webpage. So I don't, I'm, I'm not super worried. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um, I think that it has some place in content. It may be in summarizing bullet points for news stories, or there may be use cases for it in like legal writing or, I don't know, maybe even some scientific writing when it comes to like condensing points, you know, something like that. But we are not there yet. And so I think any publication that is using it, like, I hope they're using it very cautiously because we've seen a lot of cases where it has just straight up made up studies or made up information, yep. made up sources. Um, there, I said I could use it in legal cases, but like there was a news story about how some lawyer used chat GPT and like 
it just made up cases that it cited in the brief. So it's just like, it's just making things up because it's copying a format of what an article or what a case brief or what a study should look like. And that doesn't benefit anybody. So I hope that publications are using it really, really cautiously. I think that's what scares me about it is um, lack of wise use of AI. Because like you just said, so I was um, doing some stuff. So I, I helped teach at the university around here and just like kind of, and I'm also in grad school. So just thinking about what happens. And um, yeah, the studies were made up. And mm-hmm. I know for, for most people, when they read something, um, they either don't care that citations exist or they see that they exist and they'll scroll down and be like, oh yeah, look, it's cited. It's a real mm-hmm. thing. Um, and most people don't go through the process. So it's going to be really easy to you know, create this article through AI that has these sources that claim to back up X, Y, or Z. Um, and then the reality is there's no source there, but it seems more valid because there's a citation listed, even though it's not real. That's because what like scares like me it about it. Look. It it looks yes, yeah. exactly. It's like, oh no, like that's a scary thing, you know? Um and it's just gonna take it's all the more important to find the people who you can trust yeah. through kind of that vetting system. And it just takes more work to make sure that you're getting reliable information. I do think on the flip side, a lot of fitness machines are now using AI, you know, within their computer models, you know, behind a tonal or a bike or whatever it is. And I think that is cool. That use of AI in fitness is very interesting to me. And I've covered it a lot. That said, it's also not a hundred percent there yet. And just because, you know, some machine is using AI to determine the right weights for you in a given moment. That is cool. But again, having a coach who can understand the nuance of where you are. So like your tonal might say that you can lift, you know, 40 pounds on one arm that day. But what if you're really stressed or you hadn't recovered from something or you're getting sick? And like a coach is somebody who takes those things into account. And so I think when it comes to using AI within fitness, that's really cool, but you can still benefit from the AI human hybrid. So having a coach there, something like Tonal, where there is a coach leading it and you're also getting AI in the machine, they can cue you to change things if you're not responding to what the machine is automatically populating for you. So I think there's more use case for AI in that side of fitness, but I don't want to see it in editorial. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't. And I don't want to see it in training plans ever. There's a big push in the cycling world to use AI for bike fitting. And I'm also a bike fitter and it's just horrifying what people think bike fitting is and the fact that AI would be capable of producing a equal or better fit to a well-trained human bike fitter. Like why, why, why do we need that? <laughs> because it's go cheaper. interact with a human. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I am a hundred percent on your side, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of people in the cycling industry who think that, Someday they will design an AI-generated bike fitting system and they will be very rich and bike fitting will be brought to the masses by your computer. 
I just think like AI is coming from this place of like, how can we streamline every single thing and be as productive as possible? And, you know, at least from a editorial standpoint, it's like, okay, how can we churn out even more content? It's like, well, is that churn even benefiting anybody at this point? To me, getting sucked into that, like, you need to write X number of articles and hit X number of views, you know, per page or monthly uniques. It like, it sacrifices the quality of the content. And if you have good content, you're going to engage people more. More content doesn't necessarily engage people in a better way. Maybe you're getting more eyes on it, but are they sticking around? No, because if it's a shitty review, they're not going to come back for more reviews. And so, I don't know, I feel like our whole societal approach to optimizing literally everything and being as productive as possible 24-7, it's exhausting and I'm tired of it. And I really would love for the pendulum to start swinging in the other direction. Well, so much of it is taking the human out of whatever you're talking about, whether you're talking about like self-checkout lanes or... Mm -hmm. AI-generated training plans or AI coaches inside of your tonal or AI bike fit, humans are the most expensive variable when it comes to a business. And replacing humans with a machine to people who count beans um, sounds good and it looks good on paper, but the quality of the product that you get is often much worse. Um, and then what happens to all the humans? Exactly. What do we do? <laughs> you know, it's the it's a fighting battle of values. Like, I don't yeah. know, it's a much like bigger value, you know, system thing that unfortunately leads to some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, now that we've gone in an entirely <laughs> different direction with this podcast, <laughs> um, let's just talk uh, briefly, Ashley, about. The changes that we've been talking about from like print journalism to social media and everything online, and I think you've touched on it a little bit, but how do you deal with burnout with relation to content creation? It, I mean, I don't produce a ton of content. I produce some, and sometimes, yeah, you just you don't want to get in front of the camera. Or you don't want to do this or that. So how do you feel about always producing content? How do you deal with the pressures of that? I mean, am I? I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't think I'm doing particularly well with it all the time. Um, <laughs> burnout is <laughs> very, very, very real. And as I said earlier, I think the last three years especially, it's become a massive problem. Um, you know, you've got less and less staff writers who are incredibly overworked, more and more freelancers. And... It, like the industry has just kind of deteriorated to this point where trying to play stories feels impossible and you're just churning out the e-com driven stories, the SEO stories, which again have value, but they aren't always the most creatively fulfilling stories. And so how do you find a balance between those stories and then stories that you really want to tell? And so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a solution for it yet. I am burned out 90% of the time. Um, I think one of the ways that I have been dealing with it is moving over to more social media content because using 
I'll use Instagram because that's my main platform. Using Instagram as a way of telling stories has been a fun, different challenge than writing, you know, an 800 to 1200 word story. And I have to like flex different creative muscles. I have to learn how to be on camera, which I'm kind of awkward about. I have to, you know, learn video editing and some sound editing to some extent. And you have to learn what resonates with people and what doesn't and how like sometimes the things you spend the most time on like fall completely flat. And then you post a stupid little video that took you 10 seconds and that goes viral and you're like, (laughs) what? But um, having that as an outlet has been a fun, different challenge, which offsets some of the burnout that comes from doing the same thing over and over again for traditional media. Um, I also started my own newsletter, which is something I do have creative total creative control over. Um, and so, you know, there have been a lot of stories that I haven't found homes for over the past couple years. And now I have a place that I can share those. Does it have the same kind of reach yet as, you know, some of the publications that I've written for? No, but I also have a decent audience on social media. So sharing the newsletter to social media and then trying to drive audience over to that platform, Substack. Um, has also been a fun challenge. And again, nobody's editing my stories. Nobody's twisting the idea, you know, from a trend story into an e-com story. I'm just getting to write the story the way that I would write it. And I'm getting to respond to people's questions. What, what kind of content do they want? I'm able to address that directly. And I hear their feedback. I can't tell you how many stories I've submitted to magazines that just get published and I get no feedback whatsoever. They're barely edited. Editing is a good thing. I want to be edited. I want somebody to make my story better. But the reality is so many editors are overworked that they don't have time. Is it clean? Does it all make sense? Great. They put it up. But being able to interact directly with the people who are reading the stories and answer their questions on my newsletter has been a nice way for me to just feel good about the stuff that I'm writing. And that has kind of offset some of the burnout, but is it a long, you know, is it a sustainable solution? I don't know. I'm not getting paid for it. So that makes it hard. Yeah. Maybe, you know, you never know in a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a hard balance, I think. And I think one of the hardest parts about freelancing right now is just, how do I even say this? It's like the lack of appreciation for writing as a talent and a skill. Writers are so undervalued and it is very hard to be constantly advocating for yourself, asking for fair rates, you know, asking for the scope of work to be accurately reflected in that rate it's, it's hard because there have been a lot of places I've had to say no to because I can't feasibly make a living on stories that are that low paying. And it sucks to have to put a value on things like that or to be undervalued that way. And like, no, I know I'm worth more than that. I'm good at what I do. I have this expertise. You know, I've been doing this a very long time why is that not being recognized or why does that feel like it's not being recognized? And I know it's not just me that feels that way. I know that's like a system wide issue, but it is very exhausting. I think to constantly be asking for more when more is just what's fair, not, 
you know, you're not asking for exorbitant rates. Like nobody's asking for a $4 a word assignment, like, you know, carry on sex in the city. That's never going to happen. But like $2 a word for a print magazine, I used to get paid that. That's gone. Like it's impossible to get that these days. But when you're writing a story, what people forget is, or what people sometimes don't know is it's not just the words on the page. I'm not just, you know, taking words from my brain and putting them on a document online. I am finding the sources. I'm interviewing the sources. I'm calling in the products. I'm testing the products. I'm reading the scientific papers. I'm following up with the authors. I'm like chasing down those products from the PR people at different companies. Then I'm writing the story. Then I'm editing the story. If it has edits, you know, then I'm like following up for invoicing. There's so many administrative things that are not reflected in, you know, just the word count. And that I think is the hard part to advocate for. It's like, you, I know, I know that editors know what goes into a story and it's very hard to accept certain scenarios where you're just like, why are you not respecting my time? The time and expertise that goes into doing something like this. You want to assign it to, you know, a 22-year-old who has no editorial experience? Okay, but you're going to end up doing a lot more work on your end. You're going to have to rewrite that story. Or you want to use AI? Great. You're going to have to rewrite that story. You're going to have to fact check every aspect of that story. When you hire a good writer, and pay them fairly, it's making your job easier. So that, that's a hard thing, I think, right now to deal with. That's my TED talk on uh, freelancing <laughs> and freelance rates right now. Clearly it gets me heated, but uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard part of the industry right now. Yeah, I, it is certainly not the same in healthcare, but I certainly can feel you in you know, you get paid to see a patient, but that rate doesn't include all the time you spend when the patient isn't there calling the doctor, doing your documentation, filling out extra insurance paperwork. And it seems like across many industries, people are being asked to do more for less pay. Yes. And it is very frustrating when you feel like what you have put so much time and effort into um, is continually being devalued by the people who pay you. I feel like there's this idea that journalism or gear testing or writing for online is something that people do as a hobby now. And it's like, no, it's a real job. This is something that people studied and went to school for to develop those skills and have, you know, over a decade's worth, two decades worth of experience doing. And that all of that goes into making them the writer that they are. It makes me sad to think of renowned publications using people who are doing this as a hobby or people who, you know, are retired now and just want to write about shoes for fun. Like, and so they accept lower rates, which then devalues everyone who is trying to make a living and a career off of this. And it just, I don't know why that happened, that shift where it seems like this is like a fun hobby you can do for like some extra cash. I'm like, no, I, I went to school for this. I studied this. I had big dreams about making this a career and it's just, it gets harder and harder every year. So uh, last topic, because <laughs> um, we don't want to take up too much of your time, although I feel like we could talk to you for five hours about various things. Um, so let's talk about shoes. 
what are you running in right now? What are your favorites and what are you going to race New York in? Oh my God. So many things. Um, my shoe collection is horrifying. Um, it really warrants a whole room at this point and <laughs> it stresses me out. No, no judgment. I yeah. yes. <laughs> but, but that, that's no what judgment. I need. I need like this wall. If this wasn't my like living room wall, I would do that. I just don't want to look at shoes 24 seven. Yes. Um, what am I loving? Welcome to like right now? small town, central Wisconsin. Yeah. Where, see, like, you've got the square footage. The same as, yeah, exactly. <laughs> house costs the same as like a, a studio apartment. A lot of other places. Yeah. Um, anyway. on the plus side, I have more than double the square footage than I had in New York. So we've, we've moved up in the world. Yes. I can't even imagine what I would have done with my shoe collection there if I was still there. Um, what am I loving right now? Um, New York, I think I'm running in the Hoka Rocket X2. I was not a big Hoka person before this year and the revamps that they've done, have like finally gotten me on the bandwagon. Like the Rocket X2 just feels mm. so fast whenever I put it on. I actually, the first run I did with a friend, we were like 10 minutes in. I was like, I could run a marathon in these. She was like, we've run a mile. And I was like, yeah, I know, <laughs> but I can tell. Um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying that for speed stuff. And that will most likely be my marathon shoe. Um, I also really liked their Mach X upgrade or update. Um, I'm a big fan of carbon plates in everything, like put a carbon plate in every shoe possible and I would love it. I know that is not (laughs) recommended and I'm trying to vary things. Um, but let's see, what am I running in carbon right now? I really like the new balance super comp trainer. Um, I have to give the V2 a few more runs. I feel like it got a little less fast than the V1, which makes me sad. Um, but I love a high stack. I, also like the Adidas Prime X. I've been enjoying that one. That is a nice long run shoe for me. Um, I'm trying to think what else is like top of my pile right now. You so you live really high stack. Oh, like a lot of the fifty millimeters. Are like, get, I'm like, give me as much. <laughs> yes, I also I really like the um, the Vaporfly Three update. Um, I can't wait for an Alpha Fly Three. I didn't love the Alpha Fly 2, unfortunately. So I've been spending a lot more time in the Vaporfly. Uh, what else? I have some new ones that I can't talk about yet. Um, I'm excited. I have the the Saucony Kinvara Pro en route. And I'm like, give it to me. Okay. Like, get it here. Where is it? <laughs> um, because when I saw that at Thierry this year, I was like, that looks like something I will love running in. That's cool. Um, but I recently tested a bunch of trail shoes. And so I feel like that's all like top of mind. I still have not found my go-to trail shoe though. Which ones have you tried on the trail? Oh my God. So many. I just tried the Nike ultra fly, which I thought I would love. Um, I didn't love the upper on that. It felt a little like loose and flexible and I don't know, my ankles felt a little unstable in it. So maybe not on technical trails, but other trails, I also really like the Nike Pegasus trail. Um, the four, I think was the most recent update and the Zegama, Zegama, however you say that. Okay. Those those are two I liked. Um, man, it's hard when they're not like staring at you in the face. Yes. Have you tried the endorphin edge? I haven't tried that one. I haven't tried any. The only one I tried was the Peregrine ST, 
the soft okay. trail one. And I actually did okay. really like that. Um, the lugs on that felt really good. Um, I also really like the La Sportiva Cyclone for trail. Oh. I did a 30K in that and just like, I don't nice. know, something about the the like half gator on it um, yeah. and the boa dials. It's really nice. Yep. I just tried the Speedlands for the first time. Um, okay. Didn't do like a real run in them yet. So I still need some more time with them, but they were very comfortable. Yep. And I really like yeah. the idea of like modular shoes and shoe personalization and customization. That's a story I would love to write for somebody. We'll see. But um, <laughs> it's been interesting to see how many brands are offering some kind of customization or personalization, whether it's like just the brand Hilma offering three different shapes for each shoe or Speedland, which lets you, you know, build the shoe exactly as you would want. So yeah, other shit. Cool. I need I to wonder like open if the, my closet. I wonder if the edge would be worth trying for you for trail, just because you like high stack and you yeah. like the carbon plate. It's got both of those. Oh, um, sold. So. I was thinking that for you too. <laughs> yeah, Get the I'll edge. have to ask them for that. I, I don't know. The way I feel. Oh, I also I love all the Adidas carbon plated ones. The Takumi Sen as like oh. a like lower stack but snappy fast track shoe. I wear that one a lot. Um, and the Audios Pro I've I've worn in marathons. Um, I have also been trying to wear less carbon, so I've gone to the New Balance More V4 as like a everyday trainer, which has been really comfortable. Also, the 1080 is great. Um, one that I was actually disappointed with, and I not to like trash anybody because I know other people really like this shoe. I was so excited about the Mizuno Rebell- Wave Rebellion Pro. It looked so beautiful and like that big slab of foam and the rocker bottom and that it just didn't do it for me. It's so It didn't pretty. work for me either. Yeah. It's so cool. Why. Mine's right there. Yeah. Do you have the black and white one? I do. Yeah. It's yes. beautiful. That's a beautiful shoe. Yeah. I'll probably wear for it just the- because it's pretty. The heel geometry was too much for me, just with what, how yeah. and where I land. And yeah. Oh, I also but. forgot like all the A6 ones that I love: the Nova Blast, the Super Blast, and the um, the Metaspeed. I just ran Tokyo in the Metaspeed, PR'd. So hey, you know, hey. but the Super Blast has been a really nice option for longer runs to get that like super foam feeling without a carbon plate because I just I feel like I've been overstressing my legs with carbon a little bit lately. Says so my coach. So yeah. <laughs> trying trying to vary it up a little bit. Cause like, why wouldn't you want to wear super shoes all the time? They make you feel incredible. If you want, uh, there was a case series that just came out. If you want a reason to consider not wearing super shoes, um, this is a case series, I think, po- uh, um, published in JOSPT, which is the journal of, um, orthopedic and sport physical therapy, but it was a case series on five navicular stress fractures. I saw that with wearing, wearing, um, Super shoes. So yeah. that could help help your brain with that, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, my, my problems seem to be more in the like That's post. All... <laughs> mine are more in the post tib area. So okay. up the okay. leg, which I don't know is if it's like 100% related to carbon or just like upping my intensity on the track or what, because it's in my right leg. We'll see. I'm getting it needled tomorrow. We'll see what they say. <laughs> what am I doing wrong at this point? Well, you'll I also, have to update us. Yes. I also yeah, didn't want to put like 
the goal of research is not to throw it out to scare people. So that was more of a joke. <laughs> right. And than, that's only five, did, that, five yes, examples. Yes, so it's like, yes. it's hard to, you know, there is some backlash to carbon plated shoes as you shouldn't wear these all the time. Like these should be meant for race day. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a fast runner. I mean, relatively sure, but like, I'm not an elite runner. I'm not running the paces that they studied the original vapor fly at, you know, I'm definitely not getting the same kind of speed benefit from carbon plated shoes as a faster runner might. But what I found is that running, especially running long runs in a carbon plated shoe, my legs just feel like 99% of the time, except for right now, way less beat up the next day. Like I was doing long runs in old uh, alpha flies for the past like two years because they just like my legs just felt less beat up and I felt like I could get back into my training faster. So I wasn't running faster, but I was feeling better overall. So I don't know. I think they affect everybody different. Obviously it depends on how you run and your speed and all that. So I just know you should alternate your shoes and you shouldn't wear the same type of shoe all the time. And so I, I mean, I literally alternate my shoes every single run, but, um, trying, trying to take some of the carbon out for now, (laughs) just keep everything healthy. Well, and the key is when you do start running into trouble to go see somebody, which is that that's what you're doing tomorrow. So yes, I mean, I probably should have gone a couple weeks ago, (laughs) but we're going now. And so that's the important thing. Exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been a really great conversation. Um, and like I said, I wish we had more time to talk to you because I think we could talk about a lot more. Um, we will throw in the show notes your website, um, where people can find you on social media if they want to sign up for your newsletter, which I am going to sign up for right after we get done recording here. Um, any closing thoughts from you, Ashley? No, this has been super fun. Like you said, I could keep talking to you guys for hours about this kind of stuff and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. All right. Well, thanks so much Um, to our listeners. Thank you for listening. Uh, We love it when you leave us a review, leave us a comment in the show notes. Um, We're on every social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, I think. Thank you, Bach, Threads, uh, Twitter. So you know where to find us and we will see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,